it's such a cool country i know it's a, it's like my new favorite country it's amazing <laughs> Welcome everyone. I'm Jared Arts, and I'm Rohan Tucker, and this is Real Polit Talk. Uh, okay, so uh, first we're gonna do some introductions, uh, and I'll introduce myself first. Uh, my name is Jared Arts. I am from a farm, uh, and I am currently a student at the University of Nebraska, studying computer science and business. But I love history, and I've always loved history. Uh, and that is why Rohan and I started this. We both love history. Uh, I'm more of a ancient history type of person, so I love Rome and Greece and the classical age more than anything else. But, uh, you know, ev everything is great, and especially our topic today is one of the best countries that's ever existed. And with that, I'll turn it over to Rohan. And um, my name is Rohan Tucker. Uh, if you're from one of the coasts, you will also think I'm from a farm. But I'm actually from a reasonably sized city called <laughs> Omaha, Nebraska. Uh, it's not huge. Um, it's reasonably sized. Um, I also very, and I also attend the University of Nebraska Lincoln. I very much enjoy history as well, but my passion goes towards more modern and contemporary history, especially the 20th century. I'm very intrigued in that. And our topic today provides a compromise because <laughs> it not only takes ancient history, but 20th century history finds a place approximately in the middle, not really though, and uh, and it allows us to talk about it in a fun and interesting manner. Yep. Uh, and with that, our topic today is going to be the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, uh, which is probably one of the most interesting countries you've never heard about. Uh, so, Rohan, why don't you start us off, tell us, uh, talk about the beginning of it. How did this place, how did this start? Uh, so, the banning just was like, you know, just two countries, two ethnic groups, the Polish and the Lithuanians, and they, they went through a bunch of wars and alliances, and eventually they were able to strike an agreement between each other, and this was called the Union of Krakow and Vilna, the Union of Krewo and the Union of Wilno and Radom, and the many other unions that allowed for a creation of a permanent union called the Union of Lublin. Mm -hmm. And this was able to create such a powerful superpower in Europe. And most people, when they think of both Poland and Lithuania, they think about, they think about countries that have been bullied by their neighbors, such as Germany and the Soviet Union. But at this point in time, in the 1500s, these were two extremely strong countries that were able to form together. Yeah, and uh, thinking about it, just look at Poland. Poland was a one of the protectors of the faith uh, in terms of like they were a super strong Catholic country. And Lithuania at this time was still kind of pagan, which is really interesting, and that's reflected sort of in their uh, religious policies later on in the country's existence. But it was really probably the first country that had multiple or at least first european country that had multiple like religious major religious systems that coincided and worked together like there had been other re religious tolerations but there hadn't really been something like poland i don't know if you agree with that yeah i mean like i guess the mongol horde represented another religious like 
combination, but Poland did represent a solely European country that managed to unite two religious bounds, Polish and Lithuanians, the pagans and the Catholics, which which Catholics were not the biggest fans of pagans, obviously. And so it was interesting that they were able to they were interesting to build this union together and work towards a collective future. What else is interesting is the fact that these two countries were able to obtain such a modern form of government. Yeah. Um, they were able to have an elective monarchy, which allowed the monarch to be elected, which is something that's kind of rare in history, but shows like how rather than the hereditary monarchies that were popular during the 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, this really predates American democracy by almost 200 years. It demonstrates like democracy was on the rise. And, and although the United States was so-called the first modern democracy, something like this dem definitely demonstrates like an elective monarch is something very interesting and unique in Europe at this time. Yeah, so I'm, gonna, I'm actually going to sort of explain to uh, the people sort of like how their system worked because their elective democracy, there's democracy, put quotes around that a little bit, was interesting to say the least. Uh, so basically uh, at the union, when they made this union, uh, it was sort of orchestrated by Sigismund II, Augustus, who was the last monarch, hereditary monarch of Poland. And basically, oddly enough, he thought that if he created this elective form of monarchy, he would preserve his dynasty, which is dumb because that doesn't make any sense but that that's what he thought he thought that if he made this elective monarchy then they'd elect his heirs or something like that and they wouldn't be overthrown uh and so basically what that uh boiled down to when they sort of put it into practice was uh all the nobles would be able to participate in electing the king and we might look at that today and say oh that means that like only the rich people and that's true but all the nobles getting to elect the king was a lot more democratic than like the French uh, version of monarchy where, uh, what was it, Louis Fourteenth said, uh, I am the state. Was that the 14th, I think? Um, uh, and so that, that was like, uh, completely and uh, strictly uh, the monarch had all the power, whereas here the nobles uh, were able to elect the king. In addition to that, they had a commonwealth parliament, uh, which met every two years and was actually able to veto the king's decisions and take legislative initiative by themselves. And that was called the Shem. And uh, that was made up of uh, nobles that were elected by their peers. Um, in addition to that, there, were, there was a Bill of Rights, uh, similar to the one that would be in England, that basically uh, restricted the king from... Uh, taking away rights to the nobles or gaining too much power. There's a really like delicate balance of power, sort of checks and balances, just like we have in the United States. Um, there was also huge religious freedom to the uh, to the extent where like everyone was welcome. There were there was a large uh, Islamic minority. There was a large Jewish minority. In fact, most of the Jews of Europe, after being expelled from uh, various other countries, were like shoved into Poland because that was the only place that would let them. Uh, let them practice freely. And that was basically guaranteed by the Warsaw Confederation Act, uh, which allowed for religious freedom. Um, there were also basically uh, smaller local uh, councils that would serve democratic roles in making decisions for uh, provinces and cities and such. Uh, and there was also something interesting. There was a, a veto, which the uh, heads of the councils, these, how do you say that? Uh, I'm sorry for everyone, anyone who knows Polish. I'm going to grossly uh, mispronounce this, but 
Slacha, uh, which were the like local councils, and the heads of those could veto any resolution, uh, sort of just like the president could do. The king couldn't veto, uh, but these elected heads were able to veto. Um, and in addition to that, there's also the right to form an organization to basically overthrow the king if uh, he was uh, being a bad king. So they had the, the political right to rebel, basically. And that's sort of similar and uh, was echoed by Thomas Jefferson in a lot of his writings when he talked about how um, the people should have the right to rebel against a, an oppressive government. That was sort of coined by the Poles, surprisingly enough. And that, that's that's my rundown of their political system. I don't know if you have anything to add about with that. Yeah, so it was really interesting. So a big part of their political system something called the global liberty. And the political doctrine golden, golden was... Golden liberty. Um, quote, yeah, golden liberty. And the yeah. political doctrine was, I'm going to quote this directly, our state is a republic under the presidency of the queen. If you think about this, this is so unique because, again, like democracy truly hadn't existed until since the Athenians and and like the fact that they were able to have a parliament and a senate and stuff like that in the 1500s after so many years of monarchy in Europe and these these like different political revolutions that were happening mm -hmm. and the government was continually able to reform by like um, adding adding a separation of power in the future established like extended political rights to even the bourgeois and not just the nobility which does sound bad because the bourgeois are ex are by its nature an extension of the nobility but it's but better. at least it's expanding it's better it's yeah. although the proletariat are not are not completely uh are not completely represented now like there's a larger portion of the population and it's increasing increasing the rights of the lower classes improving the religious tolerance it's really it really was like i would say like one of the first modern nations yeah. which is something that you don't really think about no um, yeah like i i'm reading some statistics and i've read varying ranges over the course of today but it's around like 10 to 15 percent of the polish population had political rights so the right to vote the right to assembly and um whatnot and when we look at that you might say okay that's awful because in america it's in modern day countries it's near 100 but when you look at other Europeans, at European countries at the time, especially those that we say these are the leaders of democracy, so like Britain and France. France had about 1% to 1.5% right to vote in the adult male population, which is awful. Like that's, I'm sure that like almost more people had the right to vote when the, there was a king, and they had the, uh, the parliament of the king back in the day. And then uh, Britain, it wasn't much better. It was like 3 to 5%. So when you, it might not seem that democratic looking at, a modern nation but when you compare it to other nations at the time it was super democratic and that's really amazing uh to see a country uh that as poland that we never think of being really the first modern democracy as we see it it was probably like comparable to what america was like in its beginning in terms of like votership yeah because you have to remember that in the 1770s although our constitution has not really changed to expand voter rights except to like remove the institutionalized institutionalized mm -hmm. racism um, that existed when expanding voter rights, um, when the U.S. was first the U.S. was first founded, you have to like it was just white 
landowning men, yeah. which is pretty much the same class that people were able that were able to vote in the United States as in Poland. Yeah. Now, the United States is a modern country, and so we've expanded voter rights to people of color, to women, etc. But Poland didn't really have people of color, and <laughs> women's yeah, women's and women's rights weren't really weren't really cared about back then. And so, although although it's it's sad to say this, um, Poland was a progressive country at its time, and I mean, especially I would say since that's it's sad to say that's pretty awesome to say. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> but going like sort of expanding off, and then I have a separate tangent. Um, but you said. Uh, like Poland, even though it didn't have like people of color, had a huge like diversity within it. Having, I think it was only like sixty percent of the Polish population at their peak in the seventeenth century were actually Polish. The rest were, you know, like ethnically Russian or Ukrainian or um, <clears throat> Jewish or Turk. Um, and the the interesting thing is, if you were a nobility, if you were a, like a part of the nobility, but you were Jewish or you were Islamic, which was, you know pretty rare but possible you were still able to have those rights of voting they weren't restricted you know religiously like in let's say uh, the mongol horde like you mentioned earlier if you were like a christian in the mongol horde or like muslim in the mongol horde you were free to practice but you weren't free to have rights you would like political rights you couldn't really be in power Uh, i guess now that i'm saying that i'm there are some exceptions, but for the most part, like in a lot of these other countries, you didn't have the power. And then going uh, on a different tangent, not to talk too long, but um, you mentioned how they had the ability to adapt, and I disagree with that. Uh, they adapted <laughs> way too late, and that was their problem. Because of that veto, basically, and the, since they were so diverse, there was a lot of like corruption from other countries, sort of uh, other countries exploiting that veto to make sure that reforms couldn't pass and then reforms didn't pass until really like the constitution of may 3rd in 1971 which was like at the end of the life and we'll talk about that more but i guess do you have a talking point uh, to that uh i think you mean 1791 17 yep i, I didn't mean that <laughs> uh uh yeah so the the I guess that's true is the fact that there was so much ethnic diversity allowed its neighbors that represented the different ethnic diversities as like nation states more more specifically were able to continue the partitions. And um, the May 3rd, 1791 uh, was actually not the date of its end, but the date that it finally codified a constitution, which was which was which is important because it was the second constitution in the world after the United States constitution. Mm -hmm. And which is interesting to think about that this nation was able to most probably had diplomatic relations with our own, even though it's so such an old country and in perspective, the United States is a relatively young country. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. It's, it's crazy to think like it was, so so much like america uh in so many ways well more like america than america was uh when we think about it because it was ethnically diverse it was super religiously tolerant it was had pretty high percentage of like democratic participation um it was powerful and exerted its influence over their neighbors like it it was it was so american 
it was more American than America was back then. Like if we if we take an, a, a modern view of America, um, it's pretty crazy. And we can continue talking about the fact that although, and like we can talk about not only just the religious and ethnic diversity, but the linguistic diversity. Even in modern nation states, linguistic diversity is something that's not really recognized, as Mm -hmm. in a lot of European countries as their nation states, despite the fact that so many languages are spoken in many of these countries, they're not recognized as secondary languages. Or even in Canada, it wasn't until the 1980s which French was recognized as an official language. But if you look at this country, Polish, Latin, uh, Ruthenian... German, Hebrew, Armenian, Lithuanian. Um, These were all official languages and they were official documents and they were used as spoken languages on a day-to-day basis. And there were so many other languages such as Arabic and French and and all of these languages were also spoken. And and it just shows like this was a country that was willing to accept diversity and accept a lot of interesting a lot of interesting ideologies that were were extremely foreign to Europe and frankly the world at the time you know yeah. there were like there there wasn't much of anything like anywhere like in America even we never opened up to you know um, language diversity I mean we're still having a problem even ex- like when a huge percentage of our population speaks Spanish and we're not going to recognize that as a, a official language anytime soon um but i mean it's it's really telling to show like how sort of like their how the country was born you know two very different people coming together really is reflected throughout its history the polish lithuanian commonwealth's history of being a country where anyone can go and have a you know sort of have an equal opportunity and have rights and freedoms like no matter who they are and it it's, is so weird to think about poland at, you know being bullied <laughs> being bullied being uh stuck behind the iron curtain but really they were sort of really one of the kickstarters of democracy in the modern world yeah it's really i'm really like it's really a good thing that we were able to see like that this country was able to influence our own and so many others throughout time and then it and then unfortunately it was suppressed to an extent you know it was yeah. <laughs> it was it was not allowed to be what it really yeah it, what it, it really could be so let's talk about let's talk about the the uh the military let's talk about the military side of uh, polish lithuanian commonwealth because you like we're, we have to anyone who knows about old poland loves the military side of it so i guess where do we start i guess should we start with i mean they sort of they were they were really strong they were beating everyone and then let's talk about the deluge probably that was sort of the fall the beginning of the end of poland uh the swedish deluge uh, yes do you want to start with that um yeah so the swedish deluge was like was really the end because the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth wasn't able to properly uh, attack and it really uh, I mean defend it was really like the Swedish invasion into the country 
And I guessed Sweden had been continually growing stronger. They were continuing to take more land, which would which was hence leading to much more population growth. And this was allowing Sweden to become one of the strongest countries in Europe. Mm-hmm. And so and so like this really did cause the decline in the nation as it was as it caused this Polish-Swedish war and that was like an earlier war and then so there was a lot of decline in the military as Poland had just fought this war against Sweden and Sweden was continually getting stronger and they had won the 30 years war and so they were extremely strong and it had a large lot and it had a very large army and Poland which had fought wars against the Cossacks and had fought wars against Russia was truly unable to completely defend mm-hmm. the the king of Poland uh, was not exactly popular among many of the no- nobles. And so this really de- represented a flaw in the elective monarchy because it was... He was, he was actually like, ethnically Swedish, I believe, I'm pretty yes. sure. So, like, <laughs> he sort of... Like, this is an uh, area where outside influence hurt Poland, this elective democracy where uh, someone outside was brought in and it ended up being a really bad thing sort of the, the downfalls of electing someone is you can get these uh get these types of uh issues and i guess this is why our president is a uh, uh, the united states president has to be a natural born citizen you know yeah because you don't want to rush they may have they may have seen these these downfalls in the polish democracy yeah and and so then to talk a little bit more about, uh, I'm going to go into a little bit more depth than like strict military, because that, that's my sort of thing. Um, so talk about sort of the structure of the army. Um, and it was basically, it was made up like most other armies. Uh, and speaking specifically of the 16th century, sort of into the 17th century, because obviously in the 17th century, a huge change went through all militaries, you know, with firearm introductions. But um, in the 16th century, uh, the units that comprised it were mainly like like levy units. So they would take and you'd have your gear, and then when war came up, you'd be called, just like the feudal system, the feudal knights or whatever. Uh, but the one troop, the one unit that everyone sort of knows about if you know Poland is the the wing hustlers and they were like the big bread and butter of mounted soldiers in Europe at the time they were considered like the best units that you could possibly have time and time again throughout like many 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 battles it was looking really really dire for the Poles and the Lithuanians and then the wing hustlers just came in and literally kicked ass and routed the enemy and ended up like winning uh, battles where it was like two to one against Poland and they still were able to pull it off um, but basically what happened is even though these uh, wonderful troops and the great Polish army uh, was doing so well against their enemies uh, maintaining their sovereignty and even fighting off the Turks uh, from invading the rest of Europe uh 
they weren't able to change in the 17th century. So when all these other countries like Sweden and Austria and Prussia uh, adopted uh, firearms with incredible efficiency, especially uh, Prussia under Frederick the Great, you had Poland who couldn't really adapt. They were so stuck in this idea of the, the wing husser, the, the angels on horses that could win every battle. And the, the truth is, yeah, a horse and a cavalry is great, but when you get hit with a bullet, you're going to die. And that happened a lot. Uh, and in the end, they just weren't able to fight off the Swedes and then uh, consequently the Austrians, the Prussians, and the Russians later on. Um, so let's go on to... The second, first or set, first partition, I think, we should talk about. So, do you have, I haven't looked much into the first partition and what caused it. Do you, do you have more insight? Uh, unfortunately not, but we can, we can just talk about, like, the partitions and okay. how it was really done by, by the neighbors yeah. of Poland. Russia was the and, main um, culprit. Always, yes. always Russia. So, I guess... I guess I'm gonna. I'm just gonna talk about this right now. But the first partition of Poland came again from the growth of the Russian Empire and the the Prussia and the Habsburgs. You know, so Habsburgs are Austria. If you aren't familiar, and then Prussia would we would consider that Germany today. Uh, and then obviously Russia is Russia. Um, so so Frederick the Great, who was who is the king of Prussia, engineered the partition to prevent Austria and from going to war. So this was because Austria was really, really like what, thinking about going to war against Russia. And so I guess this partition was able to create a buffer state of sorts and was able to prevent the Poland. And so it was causing the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth from being a major European power to more of a Russian protectorate. Mm -hmm. And the Russian Tsar was choosing the Polish-Lithuanian monarchs in, in the free election. So it was kind of like, it was kind of like how Russia, you know, rigged the U.S. election. They were, <laughs> Russia's, been rig Russia's been rigging elections for a while. Let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess maybe, the, maybe the, maybe if we can't figure out our issue, we're going to end up in the toilet like the uh, Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. But, um, yeah, it was basically Poland just wasn't able to stop their outside influence. And and there wasn't much of a fight for the most part. They sort of just were forced to give it up, and they gave up a little bit of territory to each one. And uh, it's sort of, at this point, the Poles, the Poles were still super, um, super, super nationalist, and they, they loved Poland, and they, they wanted to change, but because of this outside influence, they really weren't, were they? Mm-hmm. So... I like it was really interesting to me that like the fact that the Russians were winning wars against the Ottomans and taking land from the Ottomans and creating what we today think of Russia, you know, Russia wasn't always this giant landmass that we think of, and they had to take a lot of their territory, and and so a lot of these wars were doing this, and so Russia felt Russia felt threatened, but the Austrians also felt threatened because you know. Russia was effectively controlling so much more land than a lot of other countries had seen before since the Mongols. Again, yeah. a reoccurring theme as one of the more prominent nations during during history. And so it was incredibly important that and incredibly important to 
the natural interests of Russia and Prussia and um, and Austria that they were able to continue to separate this country to provide not only a buffer state, but just a way to prevent a war and prevent continued war in Europe, you know? Yeah, it was sort of it wasn't, like... Go, keep going, go ahead. It wasn't really like... There was really, until... The, it was really... Europe is, has always... Like, was always at war until, I guess, the longest period of peace in Europe was after Napoleon... Napoleon fell and so it's really something I guess that there was a change in this mentality in Europe that war was to be prevented and the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth is already on its decline and so it was it was too bad that the, it was too bad that this had to happen yeah and then so after this there was there was two partitions the first and the second uh because historians are so uh, good at naming things um and then the, the Poles and the Lithuanians sort of kicked into gear, and they were like, well, we better do something. So that's when they passed the May 3rd Constitution, uh, which I assume was you know, ratified on May 3rd, because why else would they name it that, in 1791. And basically, this was the second constitution ever in history, and it had a huge number of changes to the Lithuanian uh, political uh, state, that made it a way better country, a way more modern country, uh, so much like America today. It was sort of like, it was really, it basically transformed it into a U.S.-like country, and that did not make Catherine the Great of Russia very happy. So, um, but basically what they did, they, they took away that veto uh, in the local councils, which basically allowed outside uh, influence to stop any reforms, uh, they provided a lot of separation of power between the legislative, executive, and judicial branches. I don't know if that sounds familiar to anyone. Um, they uh, established a popular sovereignty. They extended political rights to the middle class. Um, they increased rights to the peasantry, which I guess, I mean, when you start at a bar that low, it doesn't doesn't take much, but they tried. And they also uh, made sure to keep the religious tolerance that had been so prevalent in Poland at the time. And, you know, for a while now it's not Poland isn't the same as it was but uh the May 3rd constitution was was really really a cool document now if you think about it in all honesty um the Polish Lithuanian commonwealth only ended four years after the May 3rd constitution and if you think about it like it's really this constitution caused a lot of discontent among its neighbors, especially in Russia. And mm -hmm. so it led to the final and last separation that caused the end. And a lot of the territory of Poland was just absorbed into its neighbors, you know, the rapidly growing Prussia, the rapidly growing Austria, which was soon to merge with Hungary, the rapidly growing Russia. And so all of these neighbors were now shifting, which was once the greatest power in Europe, and now eating up parts of it in order to separate it. And this was really the start of, I guess, when Poland when it became converted from the bully to the bullied. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really sad. Uh, yeah, they really hated Russia in particular. Catherine the Great uh, considered the May 3rd Constitution and all of its reforms to be like a direct uh, threat to her power uh, because it really gave Poland the ability to become a great country again in multiple ways. And the most telling of those is the fact that it 
uh, sort of re-sparked Polish nationalism, uh, which is amazingly something that Poland hasn't lost after all the years of sort of being bullied and absorbed and having one master and another, but like it sort of kept that spirit of this is Poland alive and we're not going to, we're going to like make our own destiny, even though they ended up, you know, getting absorbed by some of the major powers at the time. I mean, the document really, I, I think, preserved the Polish identity and helped strengthen that and helped them get through all that time. They, were, you know, they have a point of pride, basically. Yeah, if you think about it, the fact of the matter is, is that Poland was not a nation until after the First World War. Like, yeah. it no longer existed as a... It, like, it ceased to exist as a state. It was absorbed by its neighbors. And yet, the Polish language and the Polish identity was kept alive for 300 years. Now, there's so many different cultures that were occupied for 300 years and lost their identity and lost their, you know... Mm-hmm. lost a lot of their identity and their ideologies as a state and and but Poland was able to keep it alive mm-hmm. and that really shows like the strength of the Polish people and the fact that they had so much pride over what I assume in the early 1900s seemed like a far long away memory you know like yeah. not something that was not something that was very very recent not something that people remembered but more like something that people admired as we were once a great power yeah, and if you look at interwar Poland, you see that the leadership of interwar Poland, there's many documents that support that they wanted to make Poland this multicultural, diverse state, just like it had been beforehand. So they not only said, okay, we were once great and we could be it again. They're like, we're going to be the same uh, multicultural, democratic state uh, that existed forever beforehand. And you know, they were able to do that for a while until, you know, Germany came in with a bunch of tanks and messed everything up. And then Stalin, Stalin ruined the country completely. And after the war, by doing the forced relocation of Poles, uh, now Poland is one of the least diverse countries in the whole world. They're almost all Polish because um, the Soviets forced the Poles living in different places to go to Poland forced all the other ethnic groups in Poland to leave. And so all the Jewish population, for the most part, went to Israel. The Germans were forced into East Germany. And so Poland right now exists as a country completely different from the one that the Poland-Lithuanian Commonwealth uh, represented. And yet, I assume that in in contemporary Polish, there's still a lot of there's still a lot of major effects on the on on Poland today. As still, this is like an this is a Poland that the Polish can really revere, and it's something mm-hmm. that they find inspirational as as a great like historical as a great historical showing of the fact of Poland and how important it was. And so it's really it's really important to look at the legacy of this country. Yeah. It's and how, and how like even during the world wars, a lot of the Polish leaders tried to lead factions and stuff like that, that would have created a similar type of country in order to represent the glory that Poland once had. Yeah. It's really interesting that we, we don't learn about this Poland, even though it's, it's so, uh, it's so representative of sort of like American values. 
uh, and probably really did influence the thinking of Thomas Jefferson and other the founding fathers is the like they could look over to right over to Europe and we say we get a lot of our ideas from Britain but in all reality a lot of the ideas came looks like more so from Poland and maybe even Britain got a lot of their ideas from the Polish Commonwealth because um, it had existed for a long time being sort of this uh, democratic state since the 1500s and I mean I feel like after learning more about it I feel like everyone should know all about Poland because you know maybe someday Poland can into space and that would I think that they just need to look back yeah so Despite our current ideologies and thoughts of Poland, in conclusion, we just need to look at the fact that Poland really represented a progressive and ideological ideological powerhouse in the in the mid in the mid 1500s to 1700s. And despite the decline, there's a lot of there's a lot of long-lasting changes that had an impact on the legacy of not only Poland and Lithuania but on Europe and the world as a whole, and really represented like how current extremely diverse states are able to represent nations of different people and different languages and different religions, and really how, how to use diversity as a way to unite rather than as a way to divide people and cause all of this. And so it really represented a way that a detraction from the nation state model that seems to exist in Europe. Yeah. And it seems to demonstrate on how maybe not all the time a homogenous society is the best, is the best version of a society. Yeah, I can agree. It's sort of, it's sort of represented, uh, instead of being a concentrated central government, it was really sort of represented a more dispersed society and more, I guess, maybe something that uh, libertarians would love a little bit more, sort of like a, a weaker central government and uh, sort of really diverse, I guess maybe li libertarians wouldn't like super diverse, but like super diverse, super weak uh, central government that, you know, encompassed all people and really represents a lot of values that we see today. Yeah. Um, so I think that probably wraps up this episode. Um, I'm going to put in the show notes a survey. So if anyone who is listening, if anyone is, uh, has any feedback for us, uh, hopefully you know, constructive feedback, or has a suggestion for a country or event or topic that we should talk about, uh, go right ahead and uh, click on that link and submit a uh, response to a survey form uh, that will basically just say what's your feedback. Uh, and we'll look through that for any suggestions or uh, thoughts you have about the show uh, but since I assume no one's going to be listening uh, for the most part for these you know, first couple episodes uh, what should we talk about next week let's decide that now Rohan um, we should talk about some other place uh, we can talk about like the <laughs> Good idea. Simon Bolivar or something uh, Simon Latin... Bolivar we can talk about South, Latin, South America yeah. Latin American independence movements I'm down yeah, about sure. that. Uh, yeah, we could make that a whole topic. Just one big bundle yeah. all together because it's just basically one guy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> not really, but for the most part, you know, he, he did a lot. Okay, I'm down with that. 
uh, and next Wednesday we'll do that. Um, all right. This has been Real Poly Talk. See you all guys next week, and talk to you later, Rowan.